Welcome to Bring It On Baby, a podcast covering pregnancy, parenthood, and everything in between, brought to you by Behold Birth, a doula and midwifery service based in Athens, Georgia. I'm Emma. And I'm Lindsay. Let's get started. Hey y'all, so in today's episode, me and Lindsay are going to be talking about what a lot of people refer to as birth plans. We're going to call them birth wishes because you can't plan a birth because that's not how birth works and it will never go according to plan. You can't plan it. Well, I guess first of all, we should just talk about what a birth plan is or what birth wishes are and what it is not. Because this is not you saying, at 8 p.m., I would like to go into labor, (laughs) and at 10 p.m., I would like to have my baby, right? Like, this is going to be a list of all of your preferences, especially if you're giving birth in the hospital, Mm -hmm. all your preferences for yourself, for your baby. Um, It usually includes if you have any allergies. Um, It includes kind of a plan for if... Um, an induction is needed, if a cesarean is needed, and what you want that to look like. Right, and so when we're developing this birth plan, what are some of the basics that we're gonna wanna include? Obviously our name, and like you mentioned, any allergies, but are there any other conditions that we would wanna include? Like for example, a VBAC, a vaginal birth after cesarean? Yeah, that would be great um, if you're a VBAC. Usually that's gonna be on your chart, but I think it's just helpful, you know, in the hospital nurses have shift changes. And so this is sort of the the document you're able to give that is cohesive for anybody that's caring for you, especially when you may not know who exactly that is. It's also helpful to put uh, support people that you want there. So if you if you want your partner there, if your mom's gonna be present, if you have a doula, um, putting all of their names at the top of the sheet, again, helps people to be like, oh, so this person in the room is supposed to be here, you know? Yeah. And it's, yeah, just cohesive for everybody. And on the note of guests, you want to go ahead and decide in advance who you want in the room with you when you're delivering and if you want visitors allowed because that's not some stress that you need when you're busy, you know, giving birth. (laughs) And it's probably not something that's like at the forefront of your mind when you're planning your birth, but definitely something to consider. Yeah, I think people sometimes don't realize that they've told their family that they're, you know, at the hospital and in labor and suddenly everybody shows up and they're like, oh, this is not what I was expecting. So yes, it is a good thing to have a conversation beforehand. Absolutely. And isn't that kind of the thing with birth plans in general? It's just kind of the idea of going over things beforehand to be more prepared for when it actually happens. Yes. Um, I honestly think I started out, it was just a way to have the conversations with clients and be able to be like, Hey, like there's going to be things presented to you in the hospital. That's helpful for you to think through after you didn't, or before you ran this marathon, like thinking about it after is like a lot. You just had this new baby and now they're asking you all of these questions. And so having it written down and having done the research beforehand is really helpful. Um, and I think that's honestly the number one value in your birth wishes sheet is that it enables you to do research on certain things. Um, and then obviously you have to know the hospital you plan to give birth at um what their protocols are what they do automatically what they don't do automatically some are baby friendly some aren't baby friendly so um depending on that also will influence kind of what you include on there 
Right. So the goal of developing these birth wish sheets is not to actually plan out your birth to tick boxes as you go through, but instead to kind of allow you to research and make informed decisions and kind of guide that conversation so that you're more prepared in the moment. For sure. And again, that cohesiveness. So if you know that you don't want um, erythromycin, the eye ointment for the baby, then it's written down and no matter what nurse is on at that time, they're able to, to see. Absolutely. Because nurses are busy. They have a lot of patients. So that can be really helpful to them. Continuing on that topic of birth wishes, moving into kind of the labor aspect of it. Um, there's definitely a lot to talk about in this category, but one of the big ones is induction and when you want that done, if you want that done. Yes. I also think if we're talking about like induction before labor starts, um, being able to bring these preferences in to your provider and ask them questions of like, okay, so say I go to 41 weeks, like what are you as my provider? what's the plan? Do you, is that an automatic induction? Do I have time to wait out and kind of see what's happening? Do you offer membrane stripping? Um, do you, you know, like what, what are your protocols as the provider? And then what are your, as the patient, right? Like what are, what do you want? What are you comfortable with? And so it kind of gives you an opportunity to, um, hopefully establish more trust in your provider um, through having that conversation before anything even happens. And that's always a good thing. But as far as natural means of induction, what are some of your favorites? I know if you go online, you'll read all about castor oil and walking and having sex, but what are your favorites? So the ones that are uh, typically, you know, you could do at home, you don't need your provider there, right? right? Like to do things to kind of prep your body. Um, Red raspberry leaf tea is a great one. It helps tone the uterus. Um, And you can drink several cups of that a day. Um, And dates are another that really help to tone the uterus and kind of prep the body. Um, Sex, semen, well, sex, but you need semen (laughs) within that. It actually is a prostaglandin that um, acts as a cervical ripening agent. And so sex, but also orgasm, because that is the muscles are contracting. Um, So both of those things are really helpful. Walking is great. You're utilizing gravity. You're helping baby to get into a better position. Um, Ball sitting, breast pumping. And of course, all of these you would want to, there's some reasons why you wouldn't want to do these if you were, you know, more high risk. But um, usually these are really safe. Evening primrose oil. yeah, those are some great ones. And castor oil is another great one. Um, but again, you would want to be in conversation with your provider. Yeah, definitely. Because you're going to want to be making sure that you're using the right recipe or dosage with these things. Because for example, castor oil can cause a really upset stomach if you're not careful. But outside of these natural means of induction, we have Pitocin. Yeah, so it's um, the man-made version of what your body naturally produces okay. in labor that helps stimulate contractions, which is oxytocin. But synthetically made, um, I think if you ask anybody that has had contractions that have been spurred on by their body's oxytocin yeah. versus Pitocin, will tell you that Pitocin contractions are very, very intense. Typically, there's also people that just don't respond to Pitocin, so they can be cranked all the way up and their body is just not responding, but it definitely has its place. 
Oh, definitely, because there are cases where we really do need to induce and we need that Pitocin. But now that we are wherever we are giving birth, hospital, home, birth center, whatever. Yeah, we are wherever we're giving birth, all right? Thoughts on free movement during labor. Are we into it? We're so into it. Yeah, I think the body knows what it needs. Um, and restricting a body to the bed uh, typically does not end wonderfully. Yeah, I don't have, a, I know this isn't visual, but if you can just imagine a pelvis flayed back on a bed and you're trying to push a baby out of it like it's just not optimal positioning absolutely there is so much evidence to support that statement so if free movement is something that you're interested in you definitely need to include that on your birth plan yes and mostly for uh the the need then of monitoring that is going to be wireless um even when they're hooked up to wires you usually can still move around um but especially if you want to get in the water, then you want waterproof monitoring, um, which most hospitals these days do have. Um, and then there's also the whole conversation of um, constant monitoring versus intermittent right. monitoring and um, the research on that and what your provider is comfortable with. Right. And there are some cases where continuous monitoring is necessary, like in high risk cases. But other than that, intermittent monitoring is sufficient, right? Yeah. Research has really strongly showed that intermittent monitoring is actually the best and leads to less interventions while also not increasing infant morbidity or mortality. Um, so yeah, intermittent monitoring will pick up those things that need to be picked up and dealt with. Um, as opposed to continuous because it is picking up everything. Some things that are normal are seen as abnormal, if that makes sense. Right. And then there's interventions because now it's on a sheet and they have to do something, you know? Yeah, that's a really great point. And I think that we can both agree that intermittent monitoring is best when possible. But what about wireless versus wired? Do most hospitals have access to adequate wireless technology nowadays? Most do, um, they require, they like have batteries obviously, so they have to be charged. And so that's probably one of the downsides. Sometimes while they're charging, you have to be hooked up to the wire, the wired lines, the ones with <laughs> wires, um, while your wireless ones charge. Mm -hmm. um, and then I will say too, since at the hospital, you usually have the Doppler strapped to you yeah. that you, um, intermittent means that they have to like take it off, put it back on. And so sometimes people just prefer to have them on the right. whole time and not be messed with. And on the topic of people messing with you, we have vaginal exams. Um, definitely something to think about before you make this birth wishes list. How often do you want vaginal exams? Are you going to consent to them? Do you want to know your progress? Yeah, so vaginal exams are, um, and when we say that, that's like cervical check. So to see how dilated you are, um, to see where the baby is, if they can feel the position of the baby, all of that information, which is all very helpful information, um, but also is a small part of your full labor picture. Right. Um, so yeah, we have the discussion beforehand of if they're gonna consent to vaginal exams, do they want to know how dilated they are or do they just want the provider to be like, okay, chart it and like, you're fine, we're gonna continue on. Some people right. feel like they would be discouraged um, if they knew or that they would just 
prefer not to know and let their body yeah. do their thing. Let their provider get the information they need and then they can just continue on. So I think it's pretty rare to go through an entire labor with a hospital provider and not get a vaginal exam. Um, but it's definitely a conversation that you can have to see where they fall on, you know, if your provider likes to do a lot of vaginal exams or not. And most are pretty good about not doing them constantly. Right, and I would imagine the contraction timing is kind of the same thing where your provider might do it, that might be how they practice, but you don't necessarily have to be given all the updates on how far apart your contractions are if that's not something that you want to hear. Yeah, especially in the beginning, I don't think they need to be timed, right? Like if they're 15 minutes apart, I feel like it's distracting for you as the laboring person to time your contractions. And then I think it's valuable if you're deciding when to go to the hospital, right? And then once you get to the hospital, you're usually attached to a contraction monitor so you can actually see it on the screen. Yeah. Um, And at that point, you kind of know, right? Like they're coming every three minutes, hard to ignore. You're working really hard through them. So as far as other things to include on your birth wishes list, maybe how you're planning on managing pain, especially if you're going unmedicated. Yeah. So if you um, don't want any medication, that is a very helpful thing to include. Um, But also, usually you've had conversations if you have a doula, you know, with them beforehand. So we like to come up with a safe word for uh, they can say they want an epidural all they want, but if they yeah. say this one safe word, then that means like, no, like they actually, they have moved from pain into suffering and like right. they want an epidural. Um, and epidurals, again, I think a demonized, but they can definitely be the thing that allows you to have a vaginal birth um, for some people. So we definitely hold that lightly. Um But then there's also, you know, if you want an analgesics, other medications that can kind of take the, take the pain down a little bit. It's like a strong margarita, but we talk about that and that's usually a helpful thing to include on your birth plan. Yeah. So then some other things that you might want to include on your birth wishes list is your pushing plan. Are you planning on doing coach pushing spontaneous? Are you planning to breathe baby out? How are you going to go about that? And then another hot topic in creating a birth wishes list is episiotomies, which we've talked about before, and it's not really routine to do them anymore, thankfully, but a lot of people are still really concerned about episiotomies. And honestly, for a really good reason, nobody wants to be cut. Um, And for those of you that don't know, an episiotomy is essentially where the provider makes a cut to make the opening larger for the baby to come out. Right. So like your perineum is really tight. The baby's head is crowning. It's usually done when the baby's head is really tight against the perineum and um, it's done in an effort to give more space. Right. And so the alternative to that episiotomy is tearing naturally, which is the best way to go in our opinion. (laughs) Um, When you're tearing naturally, a lot of people kind of imagine it to be this really awful thing because it sounds really awful. You're literally tearing open. But our bodies are going through so much during that moment that it almost is like our body kind of like tunes it down to kind of help us. It's usually not something that is felt in the moment, right? Because you have a baby's head coming out of you. And so there's so much pressure and sensation um, that when tearing occurs, usually afterwards, you know, you'll be feeling like the pain. But even then, it's like there still is a loss of sensation immediately after um, 
Yeah, so tearing happens. It's not something to be afraid of. The body is pretty smart. And this goes back to getting into positions that your body wants to get into for pushing um, or being in the water. All of that has been shown to minimize tearing. Yeah, definitely. And I've done a lot of reading on birth positions recently, and it kind of sounds like basically not laying on your back <laughs> is the best move to limit tearing. Yeah. Um, and of course, we could talk about birth positions for a day. There is so much research on birth positions and there's so many different options. But on that note, I think we're going to draw to a close and we'll pick up next time talking about your birth plan from delivery onward. If you have any questions about anything that we've discussed here today, please feel free to reach out and we will try our best to get you an answer. We hope you have a great day.